Each Friday, we bring you something a little bit different, a podcast from the world of security with our very own Jim Tiller. This is Security Bytes. This is a problem for every company on planet Earth. This isn't something just for a few companies to deal with, not just financials, not just whatever. Uh, everyone needs to worry about the fact that this will be the cryptographic apocalypse event that everyone has to prepare for. Welcome to Security Bytes. A weekly show where we cover interesting cybersecurity news from the week. And then we're joined by a leading cybersecurity expert to discuss today's pressing business and technical challenges of security. Join me, your host, Jim Tiller. Brought to you by and powered by Nash Squared. Let's get started. In this week's news, we start off with T-Mobile. Now, last year, T-Mobile suffered from a breach that exposed over 76 million people's records, and that resulted in a class action lawsuit. There is a settlement that they have to agree to by September 6th that comprises $350 million that will go in part to the people who identified as having been impacted, probably those 76 million people who signed up to be part of the class action lawsuit. Now, it's not all 350 million. Keep in mind that 10%, $35 million of that goes to legal fees. And according to my math, that's about $4 per class action member. Not so good. So really, who are the winners when it comes to this other than, let's say, the lawyers? Well, in a weird twist, it's actually T-Mobile's security team. According to the language in the settlement, presuming T-Mobile agrees in the next couple weeks, they are expected to spend an additional $150 million on cybersecurity above and beyond their current budget over the next two years, or more accurately, starting in 2022, incrementally over into the 2023 timeframe. So pretty much that's about $150 million in that year. I find this interesting because I want to touch on a couple points. One is while this may not be the first time a settlement said, hey, you need to improve your security, I think it's the first one that says you need to do a lot. You need to spend a whole bunch of money right now above and beyond what you're doing. And I think this kind of speaks to this cyber social responsibility. When we look at fines, they just kind of go out the door. Yes, they go to pay for different things and so forth. And in this case, 35 million bucks to legal fees and lawyers. But at the end of the day, the company stock may take a hit, but it comes back and they're back in the races. But when you see companies lose tens of millions, in some cases, hundreds of millions of records, private information about people all over the planet, and in this case, in the United States, that results in people having their identity stolen. It's Bitcoin wallets wiped out, all kinds of challenges that we may may never fully recognize the full scope of. But there are companies out there that are dealing with and having to absorb some of the resulting fraud. Take, for example, credit card companies, insurance companies, retail companies, you name it. But that pain, if you will, is beginning to build up. And so now the question is less about how we're going to find you to make you do better security, which doesn't really appear to be happening. Now it's the question is, how are we going to reduce the likelihood of this happening again? So therefore, it's becoming, while you may be not investing in security and something goes wrong, now we're going to make you invest in it. Now here's a news item that we have to be tricky with. So reported this week, the 
CEO of Entrust sent out a letter back in early June, or excuse me, in early July, about an event that happened in June, specifically June 18th, which represents the potential for an exposure or a breach of Entrust's environment. Now, there's a lot of speculation at the point in time where I'm recording this is about, you know, really what has happened. There's been some speculation. It's ransomware gang. They're stealing files and so forth. Um, we don't know really what's happened, but we're going to stay close to it. But the interesting part here is the CEO's letter that went out on July 6th went to organizations like Microsoft, MasterCard, Visa, and then a slew of federal agencies, Department of Homeland Security, the Treasury, Health and Human Services, Veterans Affairs, Agricultural, and the Department of Energy. So... They felt it serious enough. Now they're going ahead and investigating it, working with external parties. But why is this a big deal? Keep in mind that Intrust is one of a few companies, but let's be honest, one of the biggest ones that provides a lot of that security infrastructure, certificates, PKI, and other types of services that allow us to, you know, buy stuff online securely, use our credit cards, among a lot of other things. Say, for example, signing code for applications or updating software. You know, what happens if somebody were to have stolen key, excuse me, key encrypting materials like a private key? I mean, it could get pretty ugly. Now, whether or not this is a ransomware driven scenario, maybe it's unlikely a ransomware drive-by. We've seen a lot of these that kind of, oh my gosh, ransomware got in and you kind of find out that the gang was like, oops, we didn't really realize all this kind of stuff. And let's be honest, ransomware is pretty trivial. It's, from an attacker's perspective, it's easy. That's why you see so much happen before an actual ransomware attack. It's like the last thing. It's the, it's the last thing they leave in your environment to cause you pain after they've collected everything. So we don't really know what's going on. So I think the key here is let's keep an eye on this development. Let's track what's happening Keep an eye on what kind of information comes out of Entrust and other sort of, lack of a better term, industry watchdogs. But don't forget to take an understanding and look at your supply chain, software, access controls. How is this being used in your environment? How much emphasis are you placing on that type of technology? But something to consider, but also, you know, let's hope everything comes out okay. This last news item is really interesting and it ties to our guest today, which is an amazing conversation. Hang in there. It's going to be an awesome conversation. So this week, IBM announced that it started offering the quantum resistance encryption. Now, keep in mind that it's no big surprise that they've been very much involved in this as well as, you know, making a quantum computer. So it's well known, and we're going to talk a lot about this later, quantum computing represents a massive risk to cybersecurity, especially encryption, and we'll get into the details of that later. But about early 2017, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, NIST, put together a post-quantum crypto project focused on developing algorithms around how to protect these types of classical computers' encryption practices to make it less susceptible to attacks made with quantum computers. Now, it should be no surprise that of the four algorithms that NIST has identified as what we're going to use moving forward, or certainly a starting point, three of them were developed by IBM. So it's interesting to me that IBM is taking this push towards quantum computing. They're doing a great job along with other organizations building quantum computers. 
but they're taking a very active role in the role of quantum computing as it relates to protecting security and data. Now, there's a lot of ways of looking at this, but I look at it through the eyes of IBM recognizing that this could be seen as a barrier. So it's about what is the next level of computer? IBM was there from the word go. I mean, that's why we have PCs today. Let's call it duck a duck. They get it. They get that long-term vision. When I say long-term, 50, 100, 200 year view of the world, them helping to actively quell this and take action on that. And I'm not saying they're necessarily the first and I'm not suggesting they're gonna be the last, but doing so definitely changes the complexion of what quantum means for us moving forward. In other words, it's a total validation of the role quantum computing can have against cybersecurity. With that in mind, I think we all need to be focused on post-quantum technologies and the realities they represent. And we're gonna talk a lot more about that. And there's your Security Bytes. Today, we're gonna to discuss quantum computing and what it means for cybersecurity. Frankly, I am absolutely thrilled to have an old friend and former colleague with me today and someone I deeply respect. Uh, he's the director of quantum computing at Protivity and is the host of the Post Quantum World podcast. A very warm welcome, Konstantinos Rajianis. How you doing, sir? Hey, Jim. So great to see you again. It's been forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that. It's been a long time. I I got to meet you back in, I believe it was late 20, 2006 or 20, 2007, sorry. I was introduced to you through cybersecurity and you were the guy and I loved spending time with you talking about cyber, the work that you were doing at the time. And I've been able to kind of watch as you've gone through your career, through all these different phases. And for me, quantum computing is this nebulous thing and it terrifies me from a cyber perspective. And now as a director of quantum computing and, and the host of the podcast, and I, and I look over at you and I see this is the guy everybody needs to talk to in cybersecurity because in your DNA, and, and I think you've started off in, in physics or yeah. as a physicist, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I want you to talk about that for everybody. But for me, you've always been the top professional in cybersecurity, deeply respected. And then now you're the guy that I look to around quantum computing and try to learn more about it and the implications for cybersecurity. So let, let's start off a little bit. It's like, where did you start and how did you get into quantum computing? Yeah, so um, I, I started in physics and I guess I was back then thinking about hacking the entire universe, not just computer systems. <laughs> um, so while I, was, uh, while I was in school, Polytech in Brooklyn, Shor's algorithm had just been written and, and people were talking about like the implications of it, but we didn't really have a machine. For those who don't know, Shor's algorithm, it was, it was put forth in 94 as this, as this idea that with a quantum computer, you should be able to find out the two large numbers that were multiplied to make a really big number. And as your listeners might know, that's the whole secret sauce behind RSA and, and, and public key infrastructure. So uh, that was a really big deal and a really big threat, but we just didn't have any way to to make it come to fruition back then. So it was sort of put on the radar of things to worry about. And uh, as I moved on, I, I started just zeroing in on having fun with that hacker side of my life. I, I used to go to like 2,600 meetings at Radio Shack and things like that. So so I spent very many years 
um, hacking and, and uh, you know, penetration testing, et cetera, and kind of working on emerging threats. I, I would get bored really quickly. Like I would, uh, once I mastered one thing, I'd be like, okay, now I want to learn how to hack this other thing. Um, so, so, you know, I, I did like uh, Web 2.0 first before anyone else worried about it, um, mobile stuff before anyone worried about it. I got to do blockchain nice and early as a result because financial customers back then were always interested in it. But in the back of my mind was always quantum computing is going to come. It's going to get here. It's going to be a threat. And that's how we all thought about it, really, was this like threat. Uh, but when it was first created, it was more than a threat. When it, when it was first dreamed up in 1981 by Richard Feynman, it was hoped to be something that would allow us to simulate the entire universe in a way because the universe is a quantum thing and classical computers could never have the memory or resources to address um, all the uh, points of data that would be needed to simulate the reality we live in. So the, the opportunities, were, the potential was there for opportunities, but we just didn't have the opportunities because we didn't have the machines. So it was just the threat. Everyone just thought about that Shor's algorithm threat. And then that brings us to more recent times where these machines are starting to become a reality. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's kind of like how that's I amazing. got to here. <laughs> I, I remember, you know, back in the day, as it were, you were always cutting into the next thing, right? You said you got in web 2.0 mobility. And I remember at the time, you know, even mobility was like, nobody was really paying attention to it from an app and security perspective. Now, of course, it's a big deal. And so it was always really interesting to watching you talk and work with organizations and clients and, and speak at events and, and be able to, be part of that evolution with you is really kind of fascinating. So for me, the cyber component of this is how do I liken quantum computing to some other tangible event in human history? So for example, I think about the invention of the wheel. I'm like, no, maybe not. And I think about farming, you know, and I think about the industrial revolution and of course the computer, the obvious one, and then the internet. None of those seem to capture what I'm feeling when I think of quantum computing in the 21st century. And now that it's here, we have to start sort of putting a box around this, no pun intended. Help me define it in terms that, that we can relate to. Yeah. Um, a lot of people accuse quantum computing of being very associated with hype, uh, you know, because people hear about you hear quantum, you hear the end of the world is coming, that kind of thing. And, and I'm here to tell you that that's true. The end of the world is coming because <laughs> uh, it, it's really not hype. And, and the reason I say that is because there's really never been anything like it before. With, with traditional computing, you know, you've got your zeros and ones, binary. We were able to see that logical progression. And, and it all does progress in a very mathematical, predictable way. You know, so you've got 1,024 bytes, you know, you get a kilobyte, you got 1,024 of those, you get a megabyte, you, you can like chart it and, and watch it grow. And Moore's law came along and, and said that about every 18 months to two years, you'll double computing power. So think about that, you know, that that's pretty reasonable, you know, over two years, you're finding a way to cram twice as many transistors or whatever onto a, a circuit. So that's like a nice linear, beautiful diagonal line if you if you map it out. Uh, with quantum computing, we're not dealing with anything remotely like that. So when it gets to when we get to qubits, uh, quantum bits, they get to be zero and one at the same time. They get to be entangled with each other um, and multiple qubits in a system. So you start to play with math that's exponential for the first time. And there's never been a technology like this. Uh, so with qubits, it's two to the n. So if you have six qubits, that's 64 states that are represented. If you add just one qubit 
that's 128 states, and so on and so forth. So when if you have 100 qubits that are perfectly entangled with each other in a quantum computer, you would have to convert the entire planet Earth into a classical computer to be able to compete. If you have 280 qubits, the entire universe couldn't be converted <laughs> into a classical computer to compete. We just don't have anything else like that to compare to. So this is the first time in human history that we have this potential for exponential explosive growth in a technology. And, and we're just not used to thinking things that way. You know, back, back in the days, it would be a one gigahertz processor, and then there'd be a 1.1 gigahertz processor. And you knew it was a 10% rough improvement in speed. And some people thought that that was worth paying a lot for. Uh, with a quantum computer, if you have a 100 qubit machine and someone comes out with a 101 qubit machine, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's twice as powerful. So it's just hard to wrap your mind around that. And, and there are other factors like noise and things. But in general, it's the first time that exponential growth happened. So when you apply this to an actual use case, once it's better at something than a classical computer, it will be better than it forever and ever. Um, this isn't Intel AMD where they like hop up and down like, you know, Intel's ahead on this gaming machine this year. Nope, AMD this year. It's like a, it's like a 1% difference every year or whatever. It's nothing like that. So once you use a quantum computer and show advantage at something like portfolio optimization, for example, uh, classical will just never catch up again because in a few weeks you'll be a hundred times better or a thousand times better or 10,000 times better. And there's just no coming back from that. So that's why this technology is absolutely unique. That's amazing. And it's even as you're explaining it, I'm still trying to truly grasp that. When you say it takes the entire planet Earth to even try to begin, you have to convert the whole thing to a computer to even keep up with a basic one. So I understand, and the listeners understand, currently, if you were to boil it down the most basic item, what is the greatest barrier to having more qubits? Is it getting the system colder and colder and colder? Because I understand they have to operate it in just incredibly low temperatures. Or is it the ability to effectively measure the state of a quantum and improving the measurement capability. Is it a combination of the two? Is there a third or fourth dimension there's, that I'm not There's capturing? a lot um, involved. Uh, part of it depends on what type of qubit you're talking about. So there, there are different architectures. So there's transmon qubits like IBM. Uh, they rely on cold. And then you have this like chip with the qubits. There's uh, photonic quantum computers that just work with light, basically. There's trapped ion where you literally trap ions of something like barium and you, you move it with laser like tweezers to get the, the qubits to work, interact with each other. Uh, so depending on the technology, it, it could be the temperature, but not really. Like they, they sort of operate where they need to, which is pretty, pretty close to absolute zero. Um, colder than deep space, actually. It's funny. So it's not so much that. It's just that the technology does still have errors. Noise still gets introduced. Jitter that occurs. So we, we rarely end up with the 99.9% .9 fidelity that we need, the four nines that are the legend of quantum engineering. Um, so each of these approaches are slightly different. They're, they're starting to improve. In the case of trapped ion, they're starting to work with a better ion that might get closer to the four nines. Um, and then other limiting factors are accounted for. Now we start to get these hard engineering questions. You know, how do we get it to be a higher fidelity? How do we handle error correction? So it is possible to have a bunch of qubits working together to end up with one, what we call logical qubit. And then the ratio of that varies widely. IBM publishes sometimes very depressing numbers. Like you need 1,000 physical qubits to get one logical qubit, error corrected qubit. 
that's horrible because they're they don't even have a thousand qubits yet. <laughs> IBM's going to have a thousand qubits, eleven hundred qubits next year. So that means that whole beautiful machine is going to have one <laughs> one logical qubit. If you look at it that way, so so that's kind of scary. But companies like IonQ with trapped ion, they say something more like seventeen to one, which is a little easier to stomach. And then there's like complete other technologies that come out almost error proof out of the gate. And saying out of the gate is a physics joke here because we use gates to do computing, but. So, so something like that's exciting. Like, like Microsoft recently um, announced some work they did on the topological gap. And that's basically proving that they can identify what's known as a Majorana fermion, which is like this, it's almost like instead of thinking of a particle, thinking of it stretched out as like a wave and doing the computation with that, they were able to prove the existence of this with a 30 microelectron volt uh, topological gap. The system has a 10 microelectron volt noise level, so that's three times that. So it's statistically significant enough to prove that it exists. And if that can be used to turn the Majorana fermion into a qubit, we should be able to have almost error-proof quantum computing. So that would be exciting because then if you had a thousand, be... yeah, if you had a thousand qubits, you'd have like 998 of them would be good, would be you know reliable. Wow. Um, and then things get scary. You could change the world with a thousand qubits. I mean, really, like no classical computer could even hope to keep up with that. And I should caveat that by saying you could change the world if you're using it with a quantum algorithm. See, quantum <laughs> computers are not going to replace classical computers. They just won't. They're going to have to work side by side because they do different things differently. But as we develop new algorithmic approaches to problem solving, we identify the use cases for these machines from now. So let's take a... Now that we have, I would say, at least for me, a cursory at best understanding of something that's happening. First of all, I'm just fascinated that there's so many different architectures already available, unlike using silica. You know, it's just amazing that, that uh, you can compute in so many different ways using physics. So let's take that turn down the cybersecurity mm -hmm. lane a little bit. One could argue at the right level of qubit capability, it would instantly annihilate all the traditional uh, encryption. So for example, there's data I may be sharing on the internet uh, in an encrypted fashion that's getting collected by bad guys. And then when that computing power comes into reality, it can be instantly cracked. Is that a truism? Yes, it is. Um, so it, it's kind of a scary situation because when I said a thousand qubits could change the world, that's great. Like we're going to have this little golden period where we're solving tough problems and making life better. But then we're not going to stop at 1,000 qubits. <laughs> we're going to eventually get to 2,500 qubits. And when we have 2,500 qubits, we should be able to attack ECC, which is in use in most blockchains. Uh, so around the 2,500 qubit mark, all of a sudden, we might be able to reverse private keys on Bitcoin, let's say. And if you've ever spent one, I can now spend the rest of them. That's really bad. As you can imagine, that would make the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies zero instantly. We won't go down this rabbit hole too much, but just the threat of it would do the same thing, right? Like if, if Elon Musk one day tweeted, hey, I think there's a quantum computer powerful enough to crack Bitcoin. That's it. It's over. Bitcoin is zero dollars effectively because we've already seen the power of his tweets and others. But then what happens? We're not going to stop at 2,500 qubits. We're going to keep going. And then we're going to start getting into this 2n plus 2 equation of cracking RSA. And if you have uh, 2048, let's say, encryption, you're going to need about 4,098 qubits to crack it. It's only a matter of time before we have that. And then you could run that Shor's algorithm I mentioned from 1994 
and start to reverse uh, encryption. Now, companies and uh, more, most likely nation states right now are already gathering what they think could be juicy transmissions and storing them in hopes of reversing them in the future. Uh, so it's already too late in many ways. It's not too late for things like credit card transactions because that kind of information doesn't have a very long shelf life. Who cares if in five years someone has your credit card number? You're probably going to have a different one anyway. But any company that deals in um, healthcare information, that has a, a shelf life of, I don't know, a life <laughs> or even longer. You know, any kind of uh, insurance information, um, corporate secrets. You know, I, I like to kid that if you're sending the, the recipe to Coca-Cola, you know, using RSA, one day there's going to be a quantum Coca-Cola because someone's going to have the, the exact recipe. Uh, so this gets us into this idea of Mosca's theorem, which helps set the tone. You just take the shelf life of a secret, how long you want to keep it safe. You add how many years you think it takes your organization to make the switch over to a new form of cryptography. And you get a certain number of years, let's say, I don't know, 15, whatever, whatever the two variables are. Now, you put that on top of how many years away you feel a 4,000 qubit quantum computer is, and you see you're in trouble already. It's already too late. So, so the time is now to start thinking about this seriously. When you mentioned earlier about quantum computers are fundamentally running on quantum algorithms, and we look at how algorithms are used today, I mean, pick major social media companies or major uh, retail organizations that use sophisticated algorithms some their their creators even said we're not really sure how it's doing what it's doing today because it just kind of becomes its own sort of animal and if you look at algorithm sophistication and how it's advanced over the last well let's just say at last decade and how it's getting more deeply into what we just call maybe the social psyche if you will lack of a better term and if quantum computing is really about algorithms and that's advancing do we are we going to see algorithms be, become faster and far more sophisticated, allowing them to be more in tune with who we are as individuals, who we are as groups and communities? To, to start, quantum algorithms are very different. Uh, so you you pick a problem and and you look and see if there is a classical way to solve it, and then you find that. The classical way is almost meaningless in helping you solve it with a quantum computer because <laughs> uh, it's just not the same thing. So there will be a like like something like uh, SVM and machine learning. A quantum SVM is not the same as, as a classical one. So when you want to separate good data from bad data in binary classification, the approach on a quantum computer is just completely different. So you, you get the concepts, but then you have to learn this other way to do it. So any like evolution and, and like whatever changes are happening in classical algorithms, it's all got to kind of be relearned on the quantum side. Uh, so I think it will go off on its own sort of trajectory. It, it'll follow its own way. And, and we get questions from customers about explainability. You said how some people don't know how it did whatever the thing is. And uh, that, that doesn't always work for like, for like credit decision, credit score and whatever. Like they need some explainability. They can't just be like, we put it into the black box of hidden layers and we got back this answer. So we're starting to look a little bit at that early in, in this quantum life cycle. We're, we're trying to like do some work on explainability from now, but it's going to be a while before that matures. So, so that kind of like, it, it's like, a way of answering because um, they're just such different animals. Like we, we're not really building on the other work. We're just realizing that some of those 
use cases can be done a quantum way and and we hope better ultimately you know but even that in of itself is quite interesting because it's to your point we're not taking the old and trying to cram it into a new computer it's it's actually beginning to have us focus on trying to solve problems or trying to find answers to questions we never even thought of asking before i mean it completely changes the perspective of what computing can be and frankly, in all of our lifetimes, how many quantum computers are available right now out there in the world? Yeah, there's about like three dozen or so that are accessible on the cloud. And, and that's pretty wild. You know, what, I, I see all these articles that say when we have a quantum computer. What they really mean to say is when we have a universal fault tolerant quantum computer, one that's perfectly error corrected and et cetera, et cetera. But we, we are right now in what we call NISC, the noisy intermediate scale quantum era. Um, and we have these machines that, yeah, they have noise and you have to run them sometimes hundreds or thousands of times and then like kind of figure out what the best answer is. Uh, but they do work um, and we are starting to see little examples of advantage with them. Um, so with, with quantum, they used to call it quantum supremacy, but we use the term advantage. It's just better. And uh, it's a quantum advantage is this idea that the quantum machine can do something that a classical can't. It can it can beat it somehow in, in speed or some statistically you know noticeable way. It's really hard to prove advantage. It, it, yeah, you have to benchmark. You have to try every single classical approach on planet Earth pretty much and show the quantum's better. And that's really hard to do. But we're starting to see now that these machines that are available in the cloud, they could start to show what we call customer advantage. This idea that they're like good enough at something that customers look at a few things, they look at that approach and they say, oh yeah, quantum is pretty good. It's a decent price. It works quickly. Yeah, we'll, we'll use that. Um, and then that's how most people buy things, right? If you were going to buy speakers or something, you wouldn't like hire some independent lab to test 800 pairs of speakers and give you all the frequency responses. And you just wouldn't do that. You would listen to a couple of leaders and then pick the one you like. So, so we're kind of in that area right now with these machines. So they're, they're more real than people realize. Like we're, we're able to actually do things for customers with them right now while we're waiting for this big, big threat to approach. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think a lot of people don't know they're actually out there. I was having a conversation just recently. They're out there. They're working. They're, you know, they may not be yep. what we are envisioning for quantum computing in the near future, but, you know, everything starts small. Uh, and then, of course, in this particular case, it's growing very, very rapidly. Okay, back into that sort of the pit of security despair a little bit. When we look at things like the use of certain technology would be polymorphic type of activities we see now in malware we in the early days or whether you see AI or ML or like the, you know, the advent of deep fake. And then now you have hackers that have created it now helping people make movies. It's just sort of this really intermingling place where threats seem to like they always have been more experimental and more far reaching into technology. When we think about quantum computing and you say it's available in the cloud and it's accessible, do you envision a world where the threat community, the traditional one, not, not even not state sponsored ones, which will probably be the first to, to dip in obviously, but thinking for your average sort of organization, do you believe that threats are going to start finding ways of taking advantage of that in ways that may not be been previously thought of? Yeah, I, I think it'll be like um, the way people use cloud computing now to do any sort of malicious activity. 
they come up, you've seen it a few times over the years at like security shows that someone will come up with some way to use them and then it'll become a known pattern and then it'll be detectable and then it'll be blocked at the provider level, you know? Uh, so because we only have a handful of algorithms still for quantum computers, it's feasible that when the more powerful ones are available on, let's say, Amazon's Bracket or Azure Quantum, uh, you know, you'll log in and you'll try and use one of these machines for a little bit of time and then you might get away with something initially, but then the activity will be spotted, you know. Um, that's what I think is going to happen. Uh, the ones that will, it's hard to imagine what will happen when those Uber machines will be available, the ones that can actually crack encryption. I don't know what kind of controls. I think they should put some kind of controls in place uh, about what kind of scripts you can run um, and, you know, what your reason for doing it is. But it's that just seems like it's going to get really complex. But uh, I think nation states are most likely going to be doing the cracking first. Yeah, because they could build a machine without caring. Absolutely. Um, and then and to just run it as much as they want. And and it's fun to think about a day, though, where these machines are part of like a bigger process. So like, you know, you can have a workload that starts somewhere in the cloud and then eventually shifts over to quantum for the parts that are quantum and back to classical. It's, I just hope that that world doesn't include where someone could just be like, enter keys. Here's your answer. You know, like <laughs> that's not really great, you know, <laughs> so hopefully it'll be something in place to protect people. But, but the idea is to move ahead, right? Like, so NIST is currently in its finalist uh, process of picking the next math-based solution to this problem. So you can look at this problem as math-based and, and physics-based. So back at BT, you know, we were working on QKD and trying to solve this with physics, like sending uh, photons of light in such a way that if anyone, anyone eavesdropped, mm -hmm. they, the system would know, and, and that's QKD. Um, the the math-based approach is to replace RSA with some other cipher, you know, some other thing that could still be sent to a cell phone. Like, what are you going to do? Hold your cell phone up to the sky, hoping that a photon hits it? That's not exactly, you know, a really usable model. So, so we need to replace the math. And, and once NIST announces that, we're going to have this, like, Y2Q freakout. Mm. Like instead of Y2K, okay, everyone's going to be like, did you see what, what are we doing at our company about this? And, and it's going to be true because this is a problem for every company on planet Earth. Um, you know, th this isn't something just for a few companies to deal with, not just financials, not just whatever. Uh, everyone needs to worry about the fact that this will be the cryptographic apocalypse event that everyone has to prepare for. Because once NIST publishes that, what do you think is going to happen? You think companies are going to be like, oh, cool, we'll worry about it when quantum computers are bigger. No, they're not. Everyone's going to panic. Every board is going to want to know what we're doing, meaning we, whatever company that is. And, and that it's going to be a nightmare. People try to do it at the last minute. So I'm trying to get companies to worry about their crypto agility now. You know, now's the time to start thinking, are you, are you assessing what kind of data flows you have? Um, what's most susceptible to quantum attack? Um, is there anything so critical that maybe right now you want to start using what we call like a hybrid approach? Uh, so there are uh, ways to do um, encryption where you have something like ECDSA, but you also have like a, a wrapper of some other post-quantum finalist. And then the hope is that one day if, you know, ECDSA falls like with all, with all PK, um, the post-quantum finalist will still have been protecting that data. Mm. So uh AWS is already doing that internally. They already have a version of that in place where Bike, Psych, um, Kyber, one of those ciphers are being used also. So if someone were to access the data, it wouldn't be readable. Uh, so, so that kind of approach is doable from now. But other than that, it's also about knowing that you're ready. 
you know, things like satellites, they're going to become space junk, they're not <laughs> upgradable, you know, like, so like we need more than the 60,000 pieces of space junk, space junk that are up there. Um, it, you know, so that's, these are the kinds of questions that companies start asking right away. It's amazing. And I don't think people fully realize how fast this came on and then it's not slowing down in any way, shape or form. So I think from a, I guess the last word perspective here is the thing that keeps going through my mind, because I, I can, I, like you, you can sort of sense the scale this is going to have and the impact on, you know, like you said, companies and then eventually communities and individuals alike. And then, and it's going to also affect how we engineer things. I mean, who knows what it, it affects it's going to have and, and how we live our daily lives and, you know, how we consume things. I mean, it could have a very broad effect, you know, maybe couple decades out or maybe a lifetime out or maybe next week which brings me to quick comment on the y2q i think is i think is the main (laughs) difference the obvious difference is you knew when y2k was going to hit the y2q is sort of nebulous everybody's Mm -hmm. in a little bit of an arms race which brings me to my final point is with great power comes great responsibility. And I don't know if we have as humans a really good history of dealing with great power in a very in a very controlled way. And I sense this sort of pseudo quantum space race uh, happening. Uh, I, I guess, let me just ask you is, how do you sense this evolution happening? And do you sense that we're gonna have to come together on some level or do you think there's gonna be some outliers? We're gonna go through a bit of a, a down period like we did with, say, nuclear weaponry and things like that nature. What are your thoughts on that? Um, for better or worse, we're, we're still in the stage right now where people are sharing. Um, like, like you would think that there would be a lot of clamming up, but, but a lot of companies really are sharing what they're doing. There are papers being published regularly on archive and being peer reviewed and announcements being made in things like science, um, like work, exciting work about quantum advantage and stuff. What happens is we know that countries are reading that. And when we're right at the tipping point where we have like this really great model for a a fault tolerant machine, it's already going to have knockoff versions in existence, like in a, in a lab in China or wherever, you know, it's, so we're not really going to be able to keep, you know, the cat in the bag, so to speak, the Schrodinger cat. Um, It's going to be, it's going to be out there and there's going to be multiple machines and we're not going to be able to control access to the state ones. We'll be able to do things around the, the private ones. I don't think humankind is really ready for that. <laughs> I, I don't think we're going to have any way. Um, the other danger is no one machine needs to be built that's powerful enough to be a threat. There's this principle of interconnect uh, where you can connect quantum computers together and we're working on refining that and they behave as one machine. So if you have a thousand qubits, a thousand qubits, a thousand qubits, et cetera, you end up with 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, whatever you need. Uh, so that means no one really had the responsibility of bringing the end of the world. They just gave, they just contributed one sixth of it or whatever. So that's another interesting problem that we might have to face one day that someone will be able to just pull these together and, and do it. Uh, just like, you know, when people made a bunch of horrible IOT devices, they didn't realize that they could be part of a 4 million node botnet. You know, they never thought of it. They didn't think they had the ability to do that kind of traffic or whatever. So it is possible that that, that, that kind of like quantum botnet thing could happen too. Um, so we're really not ready. Uh, and I don't think we'll, we'll ever be ready in that sense. Uh, I think this is just going to happen. And, and if someone doesn't do it, someone else will. So these machines are going to grow. And that's why if we could get to that post-quantum 
encryption standard, like where everyone's protected, then we could just enjoy the benefits of these machines. And I can't, I can't like say enough about the benefits. You know, they, they are going to change the world before they threaten it. We're going to see um, advances in material science and, and chemicals and, and modeling the way the universe works that will improve everything, including maybe medicine, um, you know, uh, figuring out really hard machine learning problems uh, exponentially faster or better than um, classical approaches. I, I think if you've ever heard that old idea of faster, better, cheaper, you can only have two. Mm -hmm. I mean, that applies in just about everything, course, right? Yeah. <laughs> Faster, better, cheaper. You can have two of them, but not three. I think Quan will be the first time you can have all three. And, uh, and that, that's exciting to me. So that's why a, a lot of what we do is, is help companies find ways to actually use these machines uh, to do something good in the world before, you know, that, that scary moment. <laughs> you know, sometimes I talk to people about cybersecurity. I talk to people a lot about cybersecurity that are not in the cybersecurity industry and and I have this way of scaring people to death. Don't open email and look out for this and be careful. And I think for the really the first time in my life, I'm on the flip side of that conversation. Like I'm terribly excited and thrilled and terrified at the same time having spoken to you. And so I, it just makes <laughs> you wonder just kind of where is it going? And I, I'm with you. I hope that we find ways of improving, like I said earlier, engineering and you mentioned, but also in like healthcare and, you know, all, all kinds of things, great things can come from it. But Constantinos, it's been absolutely amazing, this conversation. We could do this all day long. It's wonderful. I'm absolutely, completely thrilled to have you on. It's been amazing. I am I guess if I would reflect a, you know, a, a comment you made earlier is right now is the time we need to be thinking about this and doing things. So, you know, your point there is focus on that challenge now and start thinking about that transition. Yes, every single company should be doing it. There, I can't think of one example of a company that shouldn't. Crypto agility, it's, the crypto, it's, it's critical right now to think about that. Well, thank you very, very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And catch you next time on Security Bites.